Well, I'm in this series, and, and this is really the last of this series called The Spirit Life. And the last time I spoke near the end of June, I, I went through a bunch of series of scriptures. And we'll do a very quick review at a certain point in the message. But I wanted to start out and share with you that there are times throughout history where God visits with his spirit and he comes with power. Often they call those revivals because it's God reviving hearts. Not that they're dead, but they're ramped up in the sense of of how God begins to move through them. They call them awakenings because it can be possible that as the church continues, there's times where there becomes a lethargy and and almost a falling asleep, and sometimes God comes with his spirit to awaken God has done remarkable things in history, and I'm just going to read a few of these. Some of these maybe not as well known. Back in Saxony, an area called Herrenhut in, German, in Germany, there was a Count Ludwig von Zitzendorf who chose to bring people who were being persecuted for their faith all around different parts of Europe, Czechoslovakia, some from Bohemia, there are some from France, and from other places where there was some persecution, and he opened up his his. Um, area, villages, to what they called Moravians, and they came in that place. And as often happens when people seek asylum and shelter and a place of safety, when there's a blending of nationalities and ideas, when cultures come together, old and new, and from different places, it kind of collides and there causes some conflict. And as these people were coming, conflict was occurring. So Zitzendorf, the leader of the group, was disturbed by the tension and and began to pray with other community leaders about it. They began to pray for God's spirit to come. And on August 5th, 1727, Count Zitzendorf and 14 of the brethren spent the entire night in conversation of prayer. This is how important it was becoming to them. On August 10th, Pastor Rotha Another leader was so overcome by God's presence, his nearness, during an afternoon service at Hut that he threw himself on the ground during the prayer time and called to God with words of repentance as he had never done before. And the congregation was moved to tears. And it led to an, all, you know, almost, uh, an all-night meeting. It went till midnight, praising God and singing and confessing. On August 13, 1727, the whole community then a few days later assembled for a communion service. And in that service, the entire body felt the power of the Holy Spirit, leading them to beg forgiveness of one another, to weep and to seek reconciliation. It's often how God works when he begins to move in a people. He, he begins to get the relationships right with one another. When those relationships are right with one another and with him, he has this ability to move just freely. He writes that something happened to the Moravians during that service. They were transformed from being a disparate bunch of refugees, people coming together from all different walks of life, into an excited band of disciples ready for any task. Count Zinzendorf looked upon that day and he wrote it as the day of the outpourings of the Holy Spirit upon the congregation. He said it was our Pentecost. Within two weeks, 24 men and 24 women in the community covenanted to spend one hour each day, day and night, in prayer to God for his blessing on the congregation and his witness. And from that time, God began to do powerful things among them in such a way that they began to send people out to other places. And it's there where they began to be known as God's happy people. Establishing missions and churches around the world and having actually a key role in a man's life. His name was... John Wesley. 
John Wesley, so influenced by what God was doing there, came back and had his own personal awakening and was used by God in the 1730s to the 40s to go throughout all of England with a man named George Whitfield. And they saw this awakening, this presence and this power of God coming upon people. And they went actually over to the United States. And, and in that great awakening, they saw many people come to Christ. Well, if you speed forward a little bit, I'll give you another one. In New York, 1857 through about 1860, in September, a man of prayer, his name was Jeremiah Lampsphere, he had this desire to see the presence of God come among people. Among people. He saw people in churches, but they, were, they had lost their fire. And he began to pray about what he should do, and he, he sensed that he, he should start what he called a businessman's prayer lunch. And he put an ad in the paper, and in that paper he said we, that they would be meeting in the Dutch Reformed Church Consistory Building in Manhattan. Well, in response to the advertisement, only six people out of a population of a million showed up. Undiscouraged, they prayed. The following week, there were 14. And the next week, there were 23. And at that point, they decided, let's meet every day for prayer. By late winter, they were filling the Dutch Reformed Church, the Methodist Church on John Street, the Trinity Episcopal Church on Broadway at Wall Street. And then finally, in February, March of 1858, every church and public hall in downtown New York was filled. Horace Greeley, a famous editor at that time, sent a reporter. He wanted to kind of get what was going on. So he sent a reporter who had to go by a horse and buggy. And he raced around from prayer meeting to prayer meeting to see how many men were praying. And in one hour, he could only get to 12 meetings. And they counted 6,100 meetings. Then a landslide of prayer began. It not only um, happened in these churches and overflowed not just to the day in the lunch hour, but it began in the evenings as well. And people began to be converted 10,000 a week in New York City alone. And the movement spread throughout New England, and the church bells were bringing people to prayer at 8 in the morning, 12 noon, and at 6 in the evening. And the revival spread up and down the Hudson River. They even said at that time of year, people were so excited about following the Lord and some who, for the first time, had made commitments to Christ that they actually cut out places in the river where it was frozen and baptized people. That's commitment. In 1904, there's what's called the Welsh Revival. It began also as a movement of prayer. There's a key figure his name was Evan Robert. He was a coal miner. He was just a young man. He was a student studying at a college when he heard a man named Seth Joshua, Presbyterian evangelist, who was praying at a meeting that he attended. And this, this pastor, this Presbyterian evangelist, Seth Joshua, prayed these prayers. He said, oh, God, bend us. And it says, make us willing. And Robert responded when he heard this in his own heart. He said, oh, God, bend me. Following this, he kept hearing a voice that told him to go home and to speak to the young people in his home church. As he continued to go about his studies and do his different, he, he kept hearing this voice, go home. I want you to go home. So he went home. He met with the pastor of the church of the town that he lived in, and the pastor was reluctant to have him speak. You know, what do you do? This kid comes home, says he wants to speak. And so he said, I'll let you speak at the end of a prayer meeting. The prayer meeting ends and there's people there and Roberts basically just says, I have a message that I'm supposed to share with you. And the message is pretty simple. He says, it is this. You must confess any known sin to God and put any right and put right any wrong done to others. Isn't that interesting? Make sure that before God you're right and make sure before others you're right. And then the second thing he said is you must put away any doubtful habit. So if there are things in your life that you, you just have a sense of doubt 
you don't have faith to do it, it you, you sense that it's displeasing to God, then don't do it. He went on and he, he also shared, third, you must obey the Spirit promptly. And finally, you must confess your faith in Christ publicly. And the response to that message was remarkable, so much so that it began to spread from one church to another church. And in that year, Dr. Campbell Morgan, a famous preacher in that day, really well known, he went to Westminster Chapel and he reported this to those who were in this chapel. He said, here's revival that comes down from heaven. Wales, he started to talk about, was ablaze for God. Already 50,000 converts had been recorded and the great awakening that was happening in the area showed no signs of waning. It was sweeping over hundreds of hamlets and villages, emptying saloons, theaters, dance halls, and filling the churches night after night with praying multitudes. He said, go where you will, into the bank, the store, trains, and everywhere men are talking about God. He said, if you could stand above Wales, looking at it, you would see the fire breaking out here and there and yonder. It's like the spirit was like fire, just breaking out in all kinds of different places. It is a divine visitation, he said to the people, in which God, let me say this reverently, in which God is saying to us, see what I can do without the things you are depending on. See what I can do through a praying people who are prepared to depend wholly and absolutely upon me. He said, like a tree shaken by a mighty storm, the power of God moved through Wales until almost every home in the nation felt its impact. Newspapers and bold headlines carried the news of the amazing scenes taking place. There was a conviction of sin, the revival, a mighty sovereign moving of God. At one point, he says, um, there, were, so there was such a sense of God's presence that people um, in some communities, they found that crime disappeared completely. In fact, magistrates were presented with a blank paper and had no cases to try. This is recorded in history. And they said at one point there was such a genuine moving of God that those people who were involved with helping people with chemical addictions like alcohol and things like that, they found, as they wrote about this, that God was able to accomplish more in three months than they had accomplished in 40 years when his power descended upon them. I could share with you a number of more. In Edinburgh, there was a man who left that revival, went there, and God began to do similar things. He talks about at one of the meetings, the fire of God fell, and there's a sudden overwhelming sense of, of God's presence. And not only did people right, get right with God and right with one another, but there was a, a move of God in society that helped people um, begin to deal with addictions and deal with uh, uh, all the ills of, of society itself. The last one I just to share with you is the one called Hebrides. It was in, in Scotland in 1949 through 53. It's a small group... Uh, small group of islands, Hebrides, is off the uh, west coast of Scotland. And the, the author, Duncan Campbell, who was a part of this revival, he, he said God seemed to move in districts. Suddenly, communities became God-conscious, or as the Bible says, God-fearing. The Spirit of God gripped men and women in such a way that even work was given up at times, and they began to just wait upon God. One parish minister Barvis wrote, the spirit of the Lord was resting wonderfully on different townships of the region. His presence was in the homes of the people, on the meadow and on the moorland, and even in the public roads. The presence of God, he said, was so supreme, it was the supreme characteristic of this visitation. And of hundreds who found Jesus Christ during this time, about 75%, they said, came to Christ, not at some kind of meeting, but often when they were in their home or walking somewhere, the presence of God would come on them and they had the conviction of their own hearts and they would, they would turn to God. 
One of the reasons I, I read that is just to share with you that there are times when God, through his Holy Spirit, comes alongside his people who come to a place where they are, in a sense, desperate and longing and hungry for him to do the kind of things that they can't do in their own strength. And he kind of turbocharges things. He almost like plugs the church into the wall and gives it power to do the very things that it longs to do but doesn't have the ability to do. In fact, if you look at the quick review, as I I shared the last time I spoke, about the power that is demonstrated. You see this demonstration of power. This is what the New Testament shows us of this very same pattern. There's a demonstration of power. There is a sense of awe. People respond, and then the news of Jesus spreads. If you look at Christ, the very first um, part, if you look at chapter 4 of Luke, you see this very thing. You see Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, he returns from Jordan where he was baptized, and it says he's actually led by the Spirit. Here is the life of Jesus. As you see him going through this time, he's full of the Spirit, he's led by the Spirit, he actually goes through a time of temptation, and this is what you have to note, which I think is very interesting. Before God sends him to do the ministry he's to do, God equips him not only for the, with the gifts to do it, but he gives him the power to do it, so that in verse 14, after the temptation, Luke writes, Jesus returned to Galilee, in the power of the Spirit. And news about him spread through the whole countryside. There was this power that would come from Jesus, this ability to do the very things that God wanted him to do. Jesus had this awareness, this understanding of his complete dependency on God the Father and the work of the Holy Spirit through him. And he demonstrated and modeled that through all his ministry. In fact, if you look at Luke 5, verse 17 and 26, he was aware of God's power. It it even shows us... um, that he was so fully reliant on the Holy Spirit that at one day as he was teaching, in verse 17, it says, Pharisees and teachers of the law who had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem were sitting there and, and, and look at this. And the power of the Lord was present for him. He was aware of it. Same thing is true in the early church. You see that they are actually told by Jesus to not just run out and do ministry, to not try and do things by the things that they had been taught, but they were to wait in a sense till the power of God came on them to do the kind of things that God had called them to do. So in Luke chapter 24, verse 49, Jesus gives instructions to the church. He says, I'm going to send you what my father had promised, but stay in the city until you've been what? Clothed with power from on high. Acts 1.8, Jesus reiterates these instructions again. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And throughout Acts, the same pattern emerges. There's a demonstration of power. People are filled with a sense of awe, and the Lord Jesus adds to the number. You can just, if you go back to that message I did before, you probably get tired of me going from one scripture after another scripture after another scripture. And one of the reasons I did that was because I wanted you to see that this isn't something that I came up with. This is the pattern that you see all the way through Luke and as you go through Acts. And one of the reasons you understand they call the book of Acts, Acts, and not the truth of the apostles, is because what he wanted people to see was the acts of God through the apostles, the power of God demonstrated so that people would begin to understand. That for God to do his work, it had to be not just our gifts doing what we needed to do, but we needed this complete reliance, this desperate sense of dependency on the Holy Spirit to come and to do and to lead and to move through us with his power to do the kind of things that need to be done in people's lives. Because your word and my word alone is not going to change any person's life. It's very clear if you read through the Word of God. It is the Word of God as it's spoken through people. His Spirit, as that Word is spoken, that goes into the lives and hearts of other people, brings conviction and brings about change and transformation. 
And so throughout Acts, you see this. And finally, when you get to the life of Paul, you see that power was also demonstrated in his life, but not from the very beginning. If you look at the life of Paul, you'll find that he comes to Christ, has this incredible experience, and then they finally bring him to to the city of Jerusalem, and there he begins to preach and to teach. But he's teaching in his own strength, in his own wisdom, in his own abilities. Paul was a very learned man. He was trained by one of the best teachers, Gamaliel, in his age. He was one of the best, probably, lawyers in his day. And when you read Acts, you find out in the very first part of Acts chapter 9, after he comes to Christ and he's, he's enfolded into the body of Christ there in Jerusalem, it says that he went around and he, he taught people about, about Jesus. He actually proved to the, to the Pharisees and to the religious leaders of his day that the Old Testament pointed out that Jesus was the Messiah. And he was so good at making his point in his case And he was so logical that people actually began to become angry and they wanted to, um, it it caused all kinds of disturbances. But here is Paul in his natural gifts, in his own strength, doing this. And the book of Acts makes it very clear that in his own strength, in his own way, although he was winning his arguments, he was in a sense losing the war. And so finally it says in Acts chapter 9 that the brothers, which I love that line, The brothers came around Paul, who was in his own strength, by his flesh, trying to do the work of God. They kind of came around him and said, Paul, you need a little time out. You need to understand what it means to to move and to work and, and to rely and to be led and to allow the power of the Lord Jesus Christ through his Holy Spirit move and work through your ministry. So they send him off to Tarsus. And and we don't know if it was seven or 14 years, but they believe it was many of them believe it was almost 14 years that Paul was was sent away to Tarsus, where in Tarsus, Paul um, began, I'm sure, his own ministry, but where he learned he was set aside, where God prepared him and God was purifying his heart so that when he could come back, he could come back with this understanding and sense of relying upon the Holy Spirit and moving in the Holy Spirit so that the power of God would work through him. And you see him do that as he goes on missionary journeys and you see the work of God until you come to Acts 17. You come to Acts 17, and here he is. He's going to the city of Athens. He's going on his own because his disciples and friends had to stay back in in another city. He goes there, and Athens was a place he always wanted to go to. He was excited to go to Athens. Athens was the place of scholars and philosophers. This was a big deal for him. He was going to go and present Jesus to these people and do so in a way, in a language that they could understand. So he gets up, and you can read Acts chapter 17. It's one of the only long versions of his of his preaching and teaching it's very eloquent it's it's very persuasive and done very well and you read through this whole thing it's recorded by luke he gets to the end and luke says in that place there were only a few converts and i believe paul was broken because every else everywhere where else paul had gone he had seen the power of god manifest in such a way that people turned to christ although there was persecution and people didn't like him there were many who saw um, god at work and so paul comes there and he in his own strength in his own way he eloquently persuasively puts out the gospel in such a way that he thinks should cause people to go yeah that makes sense and they don't respond just a few and I think Paul leaves that place broken. He, he's concerned. He's wondering, God, have you left me? Where's your power? I, I, I realized I stepped out and I, I did this in my way. I presented this in all my own strength. And then you come to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And I think this is an incredibly wonderful um, statement of Paul as he reflects on his path from Acts to Corinth, this trip from Acts to Corinth, where he probably 
in desperation, calls out to God, says, God, I don't want to do ministry in my own strength and by my own means and by my own talent. I need you. If this work is going to actually bring forth the kingdom of God, and if you are going to be present in the hearts and lives of people, and we're going to see you begin to move miraculously in the hearts and lives of people, bringing transformation, you've got to do it, God. So he writes to the Corinthians, and he says, You remember this, brothers, when I came to you, verse 1. I didn't come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you that the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ. And him crucified. He was real clear about it. He says, you know what? I came. I didn't come with eloquence. I didn't come with all kinds of superior wisdom. I didn't have all kinds of strategies and plans that I was going to do this. I had one strategy and one plan only. And that was in desperation. I called out to God and I said, God, would you come through your Holy Spirit? And would you speak through me? The only thing I'll put on display is Jesus Christ and the power and the love that comes through him. Because he was aware of the fact that the only thing that really changes lives It's not all our gifts and all the things that we do. It is the work of God through his Holy Spirit, through vessels who are open and willing to allow him to work. And when God comes in, he can do anything. He can do what he needs to do. And so he goes on and he says, I resolved to know Christ and him crucified. And I came to you, listen to this, in weakness and fear and much trembling. I mean, that's not Paul. Paul is a pretty strong and pretty bold person. He wasn't afraid to really go to Corinth. Corinth wasn't a place that would concern him as much as something like Athens, but he came there because he was aware of the very fact that the the only thing that really changed hearts and lives was the power of God through the Holy Spirit. And that's true today. So he came in weakness and fear and trembling, and he comes before them, and he says this, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words. I wasn't up there telling you funny stories, getting everyone laughing, and then communicating something that was really, you know, wow, that was a really good thing. So that when people left, they went, wow, that was a good message. Wasn't that Paul guy good? He said, I had one desire and one goal. And that was that as I would speak, the Spirit of God would speak into the hearts of those who were hungry and longing and desperate for God so that those people would know that God was here and that God could change their life. And it wasn't a bunch of words. It wasn't eloquent, persuasive. It wasn't a bunch of things that was said so that we'd look at a person, but they'd look only at Jesus Christ and that Jesus Christ could do something for you. And that's true today. As you listen to this, this isn't about, church isn't about coming to hear a guy speak and tell you a bunch of uh, things that you can learn so you can get it in your head. It's all about your heart combined with your head and your emotions, your whole being, your whole person, your inner spirit being drinking in and hungering for what can only change your life and anyone else's life around you. And that's the power of God through the Holy Spirit. And that's why Paul gets up here and he goes, I just want you to know something. My message wasn't a preaching that came with wise and persuasive words, but it was a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on any man's wisdom, but on God's what? Power. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 20, Paul makes a further comment. He says, for the kingdom of God, this rule, this, this spirit realm in which God is active and in which he is, is making his presence known, isn't a matter of talk, but it's a power. 
I remember when God was dealing with this with me, and I, I, I looked at my own life, and, and, and I began kind of looking at my own preaching and teaching, and so much of it often seemed to be caught up in how I was doing and, and, and whether people were responding to it and all this stuff. And, and, and God began to work in my heart, and I began to look at the church, and I began to look at the church so often, and I looked at so many churches in my own judgment, okay? I looked at them, and I thought so many of them seemed to be about talk. Let's go here, maybe this guy. And it was all about the talk. And I go, you know what? That's not what the kingdom is about. The kingdom of God is about a demonstration of His Holy Spirit's power in your life and my life, transforming our lives so that in our lives we, we begin to understand the things that keep us from the kind of intimacy we want with our husband or our wife and, and the kind of things that, that cause our kids to get turned off because they see the inconsistencies. It's the kind of things that cause us to begin to honor and, and to love and respect those who are older than us. It's those kind of things that when we work, we begin to give our best and our care Character shows up in such a way that people look at us and they go, why do you work like that? And all you can say is because of Jesus. But I, I looked at the church at that time in my life and I began to just, I began to think to myself, oh God, we have tried so hard as a church to make you attractive. We have marketed you. We have done everything. And I'm not saying those kind of things are wrong. But what happens is if they become what you rely on, like Paul relied on his philosophical eloquence and persuasiveness, not that those were wrong, that he had those gifts and that he used those gifts, but if they become the thing you rely on, you don't let the work of God to flow through you. And I want to be in a church, and I want to be with the people whose hearts are hungry and whose hearts are desperate, who are saying it's not that we can have good music and we can maybe have a good speaker or we can have really neat programs and we've got this great vision with this great vision plan. I don't, I, those are all good. But what's best, what's best is that we are so desperate and hungry that God would show up through his power and do things we couldn't ever do ourselves, like he did in history. And that's what got me to begin asking these questions. How do you move from a Luke 4.1 experience of being full of the Spirit and led by the Spirit to a Luke 4.14 experience where you return in the power of the Spirit? Some people have said to me, I've been in this series, and a few have said, well, you know, it's not like we haven't had the Spirit of God. Never have I said that. All I want is more. Jesus was full of the Spirit, led by the Spirit, but yet, even though he was full and led by the Spirit, do you know there was a time that the power of the Spirit came on him to do ministry? And my heart and my prayer is that God would take us and prepare us and put us in a place where through purifying us, he would put us in this position where he might be able to impart through us his Holy Spirit to do the kind of things we could never, ever do that we could never even dream of. And so I asked myself, how do you become a church that's clothed with power from on high? What does it mean, in a sense, for us to wait and say, God, do the things you need to do in us. Make our hearts right. Kill the flesh in this body. By that, I mean the things that we seek to do in our own natural strength. Put to death those things that, that get in your way. They may be really good things. They may be things that we look at and you've been given us as gifts. But, but do it in such a way that we don't depend on that, but we depend on you. God, would you come and you begin to do these kind of things that only you could do? So how do you and I, like the Apostle Paul, begin to see people's faith rest not on our wisdom, but on God's power? I just wrote there's four essentials to this. Four essentials to what I think is this birthing of the Spirit through power. And I, I don't think you can get around the first one, ever. 
And it's one that has to always be there. And it's what I call desperation. Paul was convinced that the work of God couldn't be done without God's power. He was desperate for this. He was convinced of this. As thoroughly trained and gifted as he was, his heart cry was simple. When he made his way to Corinth and touched the rest of his life, and you see it in other parts after that in Acts, where the Spirit comes with incredible power in different places, he had one simple prayer, and that is, God, take my gifts and use me, but help me get out of the way so that your Holy Spirit, which I am so desperate for, would move in and through me and do the kind of things that I could never, ever in my own strength too. Jesus was really clear about this too. Jesus said to people, blessed are the poor in spirit. He basically made the statement, those of you who don't feel you're real gifted and you don't have a lot of things, that, you know, like, what talents do I have to give you, God? He goes, blessed are you. Because you probably won't rely on them the way the people who are talented and gifted do. Blessed are you who are poor. Blessed are you who don't have anything. Because when you don't have anything, you have to look where? You have to look to God. For theirs is the kingdom of of heaven, he says in Matthew. It's the idea, there is the rule, kingdom, of this realm of the spirit, which is what heaven is what he's referring to. Those kind of people who are desperate for God, who understand their poverty, and who are willing to stay in that poverty and move in that desperate sake of God, you must do what needs to be done or it won't get done, begin to see the work of God. And he was quite clear on this. Yesterday, uh, two days ago in my quiet time, I've been reading through the book of John. And when I go through quiet times, sometimes I go through really slow. I, I one time went through the book of First Samuel, and it took me three years to get through First and Second Samuel. I was doing devotionals for people, um, but they were patient. But I'm going through John 6 slow. And at one point, as you go through there, you begin to see how active the Spirit of God is in the book of John, in the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, obviously, is about the centrality of who Jesus Christ is. And yet, at the same time, you see the operation of the Holy Spirit. So that Jesus, when a guy Nicodemus comes to him and he says, what must I do to actually enter into this realm of the Spirit? How do I get born into this? And, and Jesus says, well, you must be born again. And he's thinking, I must be physically born. And Jesus goes, no, you don't get it. It's a spiritual birth. For the wind blows as it does. He's basically trying to always, through John, get people to quit looking at a physical realm with what they got and look to a realm that's, that's in the Spirit that you must, by faith, believe in and that you must be desperate for. So that when a woman comes to him and, and she's desperate for the life of God, she's desperate for this water. She comes to the well. She wants physical water. She's feeling so much shame. And here Jesus comes around her and he, he offers himself to her and says, I have living water. And she goes, well, you don't have any water to draw from. And he goes, if you knew the water that I had, which isn't physical water, but the water, the life that your heart longs for, that my heart longs for, that we long for. The person that you work with, the neighbor that you are next to, their hearts long for, that they're seeking to try and get out of a marriage, or they're seeking to try and get out of some kind of money that they make at a job, that they're seeking to get out of some kind of title that makes them feel worthy, that they're seeking as parents sometimes to get out of their kids. You name it where you try and get life from. Jesus said, the only place you can get that kind of life is from me, and it comes through the Spirit of God. And, and, he, and he goes through this whole thing. So finally... I'm in John 6, and I'm, I'm looking at this, and Jesus presents himself as he has just fed a thou, you know, thousands of people. They've had um, this incredible miracle where, where they are eating bread, and they have this fish, and they have all these loaves left over. And they kind of try, they're trying to find Jesus, and they come to Jesus and said, you know, how did you get to this place? He had actually come across the lake, didn't use a boat, he walked across, you know, it was kind of one of those kind of cool things. How did you get here? And Jesus goes to me, you're not, trying to, you're not looking for me because you want the Spirit. You just want your tummy filled. 
And he went on to this and launched into this. Here's the life that will, will always fill you. And it's the life that comes through a relationship with a God who loves you deeply and dearly and who has come with grace to take you and meet you wherever you're at. And so he says, here's this, here's this God that, you, that if you really want, you'll get life. And as he goes on at a certain point, the Jews begin to grumble and they get upset because he says, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood, which is a, is a simple way of saying, if you don't so rely on me, if you don't so become desperate and dependent on me and see how I have lived my life in the spirit, then you won't know this. Well, that's a hard thing for them to understand because they're still thinking what? Physical. I got to eat it. They're, they're a little upset. They're grumbling. They're complaining. They're realizing as he's saying this, he says, Moses gave you manna from heaven or that you said was from heaven, but that was just bread. I'm the manna from heaven. And then they're getting upset. And, and he says, you must eat my blood and drink or eat, eat, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And now at this point, the disciples start grumbling. It's really interesting. You see the grumbling happening. Now his own disciples are grumbling. Because guess what, folks? Even in a church like this, there are people who don't want the flesh removed. They don't want the spirit. They want to stay in control. And God says, you know what? Until you come to the place where you want nothing more than just me. When you come to the place where you're willing to let go and and give me complete control. And so his disciples grumble and they complain and it says they left him. And it's an interesting thing as they're grumbling. He looks at these disciples who are having a hard time understanding the things of the spirit. He looks at him and goes, what are you guys going to do when you see me physically ascend to heaven or to this realm of the spirit? How are you going to handle that? And then he makes a statement that's kind of out of the blue. I read these things and I go, John, what are you writing? What is Jesus thinking here? He makes a statement in John 6. He says, verse 63, the spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. I love the way it's translated by Eugene Peterson in the message. The spirit can make life. It's a spirit that gives life. Then he says this, sheer muscle and willpower don't make anything happen. You know, in the Old Testament, I was thinking about this in between services. It came to me that, that the priest, the oil, which symbolizes the, the Holy Spirit, would never put the, whole, the oil on unconsecrated flesh. It, they basically had to be consecrated in a sense that it had to be made, It had to be consecrated in the sense set apart this realm of the spirit so that the person who was who was actually allowing for this oil, the, which represented the spirit to come on him, the flesh had to be removed. That's why it goes in the Bible, it says flesh and spirit are at war with each other. And God has to purify. So, so the first thing is, is this idea of desperation. Are we desperate like Paul? And if you looked at all those revival, when people get desperate, what do they do? When you're in a foxhole and you're getting shot at, what do you do? Yeah, I'm glad someone's awake. You pray. And when a church is at a place where they're saying, God... We got a lot of really great things and we could put all this stuff on. But when they come to a place where they say, God, we could do all this stuff, but it isn't going to happen unless you show up. They pray. They get desperate. I remember Dallas Willard, who was a, a, a teacher that I had who wrote a couple books. He's kind of in some ways a C.S. Lewis over time. I remember at one point he said this statement in class and I, I liked what he said because it made a lot of sense to me. He said, you know what? Ninety five percent of prayer is desire. Ninety-five percent of prayer is desire. It's your longing directed toward God. And then he gave this illustration, which was a great illustration. He said, you know, "Have you ever seen a dog beg for food at the table? Anybody? Ever, anybody here? 
You know how they do it? They just sit there. You look at those eyes, and you at a certain point have to say, stop it and get away. Right? It's just because those eyes just... And you get these sad eyes. He said, you know what? That's what really the prayer is before God. I think to myself, if there's a whole group of us, and there's a whole group of people, there's this sense of, of people looking up for God and just going... We're desperate. We hunger for you. And not only is there desperation, there's preparation. I believe every person used of God who saw the power of God come through in in their life went through a time of preparation. It's throughout the Bible. There's always a time of preparation. Joseph is in a pit. He goes to Potiphar and he goes to prison. And then finally he's exalted to the second, to Pharaoh. Moses goes 40 years. He's in Egypt. 40 years in the wilderness. And guess what? He travels another 40 years. Not because he needed to be prepared at this time, but the people he was leading needed to be prepared. David is anointed by Samuel, told he'd be king. He defeats Goliath. And then what happens? He ends up running for years because Saul starts using him as target practice with his spears. And so he runs and he's probably wondering, what is this anointing, this power, this kingdom that I'm supposed to rule? Do you know Jesus was 30 years old before he began his ministry? Think about it. This is a child who's at 12 years of age. He's at the temple. He's talking with the teachers. And the teachers are astounded at his knowledge and his understanding. His mom comes to him upset that he didn't go with them. And he looks at him and goes, you don't even know who I am, mom. You, you don't understand my identity. That I am about my father's business. Here he is at 12 understanding. Can you imagine any 20-year-old who understands what they're supposed to do being patient till they're 30? Seriously. Here's Jesus, he gets towards 20, and I bet you in his heart, he's ready to go do what his father has called him to do. But because of his father, Joseph, his earthly father, passes away, he stays at home and runs the family business till one of his other brothers is in a place that he can take over and care for the family. And finally, he gets a release from God as he's prepared and he's ready to go out into ministry. Preparation is God's school where I believe, and some of you may be in this right now, God is preparing you for what he wants to do. And I want you to know that it is there you learn to be faithful. A lot of times we think that when we really are growing in Christ, it's when we're really feeling good and, boy, things are great. You know what the times you grow the most is when you're in this place and you're saying, God, what are you doing? And you can't hear his voice and you don't understand and yet you remain faithful. It's in this place of preparation you begin to take your gifts and you begin to start to learn them and use them and understand them and, and you begin to do the things that God wants you to do. It's in this place that you begin to hopefully listen and hear and, 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 and know the Spirit where you get in touch and you know God's Word and you begin to, to hopefully get that as a part of your life so it builds your character. And it's in this place of preparation where you understand that you are defined not by what you do and what's outside of you, but you are defined by one thing, and that is by the love of God, that you are a child of God. You are His son and daughter, and it's not based on anything else than that. And God, if you're willing to go through preparation, you will be purified. That's going to happen. Jesus goes through this preparation. He's ready to go. He gets baptized. His father says, this is my son. I'm really thrilled about this guy. Can you see it? You know, here he is. He can hear it. Man, this is my boy. Wow, everybody, look. Jesus comes out of there. He's, he's glowing. He's got, the, he's got this dove flying, hanging around him, you know. 
And he walks out of there. And what does God do? God, it says, in fact, in Mark, it says that the Holy Spirit almost led him like, like on a leash, in a sense. God, full, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, was driven or led by the Spirit into the desert where he was purified. And you will, if you desire to see God work in ways that are beyond what you could imagine or think, where you want the Spirit of God and you're desperate for him to come with his power to use you, you will, you will in that desperation, be moved to a place of preparation, and then you will be purified. Because God will prove you through trials and testing. I remember years ago in my ministry, I was praying for God to pour out His Spirit. Good things were happening. The church was growing. Um, we had a great impact. But a thing, funny thing happened is I began to say, God, I want more of you. And I began to pray for the outpouring of the Spirit and for this power to come. Things immediately got worse. And not just for a few days or for a few months, but for four years. And I was on a silent retreat, on a study break, where I was praying to God. I was confused. I didn't understand this. I said, God, I prayed for you to come and for your spirit to come with power. And now everything's gotten worse. And so on this one morning, I just asked God, I said, God, what's up? And I remember in John, it says that Jesus says, you're no longer a servant. And as I was praying, this came to mind. But he, you're no longer a servant, but you are now my friend. And so I said, I had to, I had to, I almost felt like I had the guts. I said, that, I said in my time of prayer, I said, Jesus, if I'm your friend, then tell me what's going on. And, and when I said that, I had been memorizing some scripture, really about a month before this. This scripture came into my mind. It just came into my mind. Psalm 66, verses 10 through 12. For you, O God, tested us. You refined us like silver. You brought us out of prison and laid burdens on our backs. I'm reading this since all about preparation and even more so about purification. And then, I, then the next line just grabbed hold of me and almost made me angry, to be honest with you. You let men ride over our heads. And I'm thinking to myself, what kind of God are you? I have horses. I know what it's like when I let those horses out in the spring and I hear them run as hard as they can. You can feel it in the ground. You let men ride over our heads? You refined us. He goes, and we went through fire and water, but you brought us to a place of abundance. And I started, I go, I've got to understand this more. So I went to a commentary. I looked up and the commentary referred me to Malachi chapter 3 because I'm trying to understand at this point what does it mean for the Spirit of God to come? I've been praying for the Spirit of God to come. This isn't anything about the Spirit of God. This is about someone running over your head, and I wasn't too crazy about that. So I turn to Malachi chapter 3. I begin to start reading verses 1 through 4, hoping for some help and greater understanding, as I feel like Jesus is leading me on this trail. And I'm asking why this pain. And I read verse 1, and it says, See, I will send my messenger. I'm kind of going, oh, this is cool, okay. Who will prepare the way before me? Then suddenly the Lord who you are seeking will come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come. And I'm going, okay, God, that's the kind of stuff I want to hear. And then I read the next line. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And silver is purified differently than gold. Silver, you go back and forth and back and forth to get the impurities out of it till it's finally pure. It's a long process. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men or people who will bring 
righteous offerings. Offerings of Jude and Jerusalem that are acceptable to him. And it was as if the Lord was just saying to me, Kevin, you really want the spirit? You really want my myself to flow through you and through the ministries that you will be a part of? He basically said, then you need not only be prepared, but you need to be purified. That's a part of what God does. And I remember at that point just thinking to myself, as if the Lord was saying to me, Kevin, I don't want to serve my grace and my love and my goodness on a bunch of dirty dishes. I want to, I want to refine and purify them. And I remember thinking to myself, God, whatever you need to do, do it. I got to tell you something. Our Father in heaven is so wise, you guys. He is not one who will will give out his power to immature um, people who will use and abuse it in other people's lives. He is so loving that he doesn't do that. Let me just ask you this question, because I think you're good people. How many of you would give a surgeon's knife to a three-year-old? How many of you? would give a loaded gun to a six-year-old. I mean, those things can be used for good and bad, right? How many of you would give the keys of your car to a 16-year-old? Yeah. Friends, God is in the process of causing our hearts to be desperate In some cases, he has prepared some of you and purified you. Some of you are going through a preparation phase. Some of you are being purified. My prayer is as a church that he has prepared and is purifying us, that God would come in the years of ministry ahead and so moved by his Holy Spirit that people would look on and they would see by awe, not because you're really good and great and because you've got all kinds of gifts and i got gifts or talents, but they would look and they would see Christ crucified and the love of God and the power of God sweeping through the ministries of this body in such a way that people would be odd, not because of us, but because of him. And I think God, all he wants, I'm going to ask you to stand at this point, would you? Just stand for a second. We'll close, and so those who are going to play, if you come. Here's what I think God would love to see. I think he would love to see a bunch of hungry, desperate people, like, like those dogs that just are looking up going, please, we're really... We really know that if you're going to do this, we need you. And we need the freedom of your spirit to move in this place. We're going to sing this song and then in a moment I'll close.